right, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 this morning. I don't know about your kids um, when they were little or when they were teenagers, but kids have a, uh, an incredible uh, ability and gift to, to very quickly turn a perfectly organized house into what looks like a war zone. Can I get an amen from any parents in the house? All right. It's usually mom, usually mom who has taken time to get everything nice and clean and tidy and drawers all pushed in and uh, things put away and the kitchen clean and the sink clear and the counters cleared off and the, the pantry all nice and neat. And uh, within minutes, that mom seconds, <laughs> I stand corrected, the mom can turn around and it looks like a tornado came through the house, right? Now, one of those culprits sometimes can be dad, all right? That he can be involved in a little bit of that messiness, all right? Uh, I.e. me, you know, instigating wrestling matches on in, in our master bedroom on the, on the neatly you know, made bed, right? Because that's just a good place to have a professional imaginary wrestling match with my boys. Um, but how many of you moms have walked in? Maybe you, you, you left the house, you know, looking a certain way and you walk back in at the end of the day and you just look around and it's like, really, really? How in the world did that neat house get to look like this? And, you know, just completely flipped upside down. Now in Acts chapter 19, uh, we read about how Paul and his mission team, they walk into to Ephesus, and it looks one way, and in a very short amount of time, things, you could say, have gotten flipped upside down. Uh, you could say that the enemy has taken time to organize that city to look a certain way, to function a certain way, as uh, strategically and neatly put into place idols made of wood and stone and metal, and has set those up in strategic points and places, beautifully through the hands of, of men, uh, has uh, you know, built up these idols that are impressive to look at, the aesthetic to look at, the beautiful to the eye, but uh, were being used for people to go and to, to worship false gods through. In other words, through the eternal perspective of the kingdom of darkness, things look nice and neat. But in Acts chapter 19, what we see is the wrecking ball of the gospel come into that city and acts absolutely wreak havoc for the glory of God. Flip things upside down. I mean, knocking idols over. It's causing people who had spent their life uh, committed to, to pagan idolatry, turning from a worship of gods made with hands to the God who made everything. The creator God who made them, who created the way through his son, Jesus Christ, and his death and resurrection for them to have a relationship with him. Things got completely flipped upside down for the glory of God. I guess you could say like kids moving through a house, creating a lot of mess. Paul and his missionary partners moved through the city of Ephesus and created a good kind of mess. Flip things upside down in a good kind of way. No way am I condoning. It's kind of metaphor falls apart. Condoning you going home and messing things up. But it is a good little place for you parents to take that maybe and use it as an illustration for them to create the right kind of mess. And in Acts chapter 19, we see Paul doing that in the city of Ephesus. Flipping things upside down for the glory of God. Scratch that. A better way to say it. Flipping things right side up for the glory of God. Through the power of the gospel. We're going to spend two Weeks in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, studying, dissecting this city that got flipped, uh, turned right side up by the power of the gospel. And so, part one is going to be today. We'll do part two next week. So, we'll be in Acts chapter 19 for two weeks. Stand with your Bibles open, and I'll begin to read for this first part in verse 8. 
And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the halls of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I'm not going to talk a lot about this part this morning, but just remember that what's described in Acts isn't in the early church in those early days isn't necessarily always prescribed for us. All right. So this doesn't mean we're going to be having some miracle prayer hankies in our gift shop anytime soon. All right, God just worked in some very unique, miraculous, supernatural ways really to authenticate the message of the apostles in these early days. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered him, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. (laughs) Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I thank you for an opportunity again to come together and to worship you today. Lord, I just pray over everyone, maybe those who are tuning in right now, people who aren't able to be with us, maybe because they're sick, they're caring for a loved one who's sick with maybe the virus or something else. And uh, Lord, I just pray for them. I pray you'd heal them. And Lord, I pray that you would, uh, that your presence would just be felt in a strong way in their life, uh, even in this very moment. Um, and they lean into you and be driven to the sufficiency of your son. Lord, I pray as we get into your word this morning, help us to understand at an even deeper level, help us to believe even at a deeper level uh, about who you've called us to be, the mission you've called us to be on, and how you've equipped us to be on that mission uh, and to be uh, used effectively for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, spend a little time catching up, all right? So last week we listened to Paul uh, preach a sermon on Mars Hill in Athens to a group of elite people in that culture. And uh, some people got saved, God worked, but then he moves on to a place called Corinth, a city called Corinth, where he meets uh, some some new mission partners uh, named Priscilla and Aquila. This is also where he meets back up with Silas and uh, Timothy. Evidently, remember, he was waiting for him in Athens. That's why he was strolling around town and ended up at Mars Hill. Uh, but Paul's the type of guy that's he's tired of waiting around, so he heads on to Corinth, and that's where they catch up with him there. And, uh, and then Paul and his team, they pack up, and they, he decides that uh, he needs to head back east. He wants to go back over to Antioch, to his home church, home base, and, uh, and, and on the way there, they actually do make a stop in Ephesus, but it's not a long stop, or at least he doesn't make a long stop. Gets to Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla, he leaves them there to make disciples, and he, they team up with a guy named Apollos. You can read about that at the end of chapter 18. And P- Apollos had already been in Ephesus, uh, preaching about Jesus. Uh, his gospel, it needed a little help, his presentation, his understanding of it. And Priscilla and Aquila, they help him do that. But it is interesting to think about that Apollos, how many of you have heard about Apollos? He was the first person preaching there in Ephesus. In fact, a lot of the places where Paul would go in and preach that we read about in Acts, there's already someone, often an everyday person, preaching to everyday people that's been there preaching God's word. You need to hear that. You need to remember that. Because God has placed you 
wherever you will be this week, whatever job you have, whatever skill set you have, however you are working and being, wherever you're at around other people, God's placed you there for the purpose of pointing those people to Jesus Christ. He made you really good at teaching math to be there, yes, to provide, uh, you know, uh, help to, to educate students and to provide for your family, but to ultimately be there to point those people that you're in, interacting with daily to Jesus Christ. You need to remember that no matter where you've been placed this week, that God has always tended to use everyday people in everyday places to point everyday people to Jesus Christ. And Paul heads to... Uh, he had, he's in Ephesus for a short amount of time. And again, he drops off Priscilla and Aquila and he doesn't stay very long. The people in Ephesians, they hear him teach just for a moment. They're like, please stay. We want to hear more. We want to understand more. And he says uh, there at the end or at the end of verse uh, chapter 18 or beginning of chapter 19, he says, I will return if God wills it. And so he ends up uh, heading on to Antioch. He camps out there for just a, a brief amount of time. He refuels, he revisits, and then he hits the road and begins his third missionary journey. And one of the first stops that he makes on his third missionary journey is this stop in Ephesus. It's a two and a half year stop in Ephesus to minister to these uh, Ephesian people. All right. And that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 19. These two and a half years are all packed into this one chapter. And in Ephesus, what Paul's going to do is he's going to help establish a church that's going to become one of the most influential and most important churches in all of Christian history, the church at Ephesus. Uh, We we learn more about this church than any other church. I mean, we have the beginnings of it right here in Acts chapter 19. We have a whole letter, an epistle uh, to the Ephesians that's written back to this church. Uh, We have 1 and 2 Timothy. Did you know that that is a letter written to a young pastor named Timothy who is the pastor at that time at the church in Ephesus? Uh, We, uh, in Revelation chapter two, Jesus actually sends very sobering words to this church. It's a church that's talked a lot about. It's a very important church. We also have a lot of information just about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the most influential cities in that part of the world at the time. It was a commercial hub in the empire. It had a large harbor. Uh, It was particularly famous for the worship of a false goddess named Artemis or called Diana. Sometimes you'll see her called Diana. That was just her nickname. And in the middle of the city or in that city, there was a big elaborate temple constructed to house her statue. And it was elaborate, colorful, lined with gold leaves, a lot of money, a lot of attention to detail put into that. And people would come from all over just to see the architecture there. And it was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so they were known for that. And they were known, you know, as people who, who were devoted in their worship to Artemis. Defending Artemis, you know they, uh, they 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 were avid worshippers. It was a the temple, the the worship of Artemis actually helped fund the, the economy. It was the central to the life of those Ephesians. But here comes Paul and his team into this town, and as Paul walks into this town and the gospel advances, what you begin to see is the worship culture, the power of the gospel, the worship culture in this city begin to shift and begin to change in miraculous ways. And this is a story that continues to remind us as we see Paul and his team on the move yet again, come into a city and remain on the move, that that is exactly what the church is. The church is a movement. We've come, up, come back to this over and over and over again in Acts, that the church, that we are on mission, that our church is not this worship center, that our church is not the sanctuary, that our church is not 
buildings or screens or bands or budgets or classrooms. All of those are good things. All of those are blessings to have. All of those are great resources that we thank God for, but they're here to help facilitate the mission. People are the church. It's not a building. It's not a social justice cause. It's not a place. It's a movement where people centered saved by grace are gathering around a message called the gospel and then going out to advance it, to invade the community with it, to confront idolatry with it in this community and in our own lives, reaching the lost, making disciples who then join the movement themselves. That is who we are. We're a church on a mission. We're a church on the move. And what makes a movement a movement is that it moves. And we can learn a lot about gospel advancement as we study this city. This city called Ephesus that's flipped right side up by the power of the gospel for the glory of Jesus Christ. And in this text, we're going to break it into two parts. And in those two parts, we're going to see two things. All right. So this week, we're going to see two reminders about gospel advancement. Next week, we're going to look at two responses to gospel advancement. And these are as true as they were for them then. They're as true for us today. Two reminders about gospel advancement. That's this morning. Let me start with this first one. Here's the first one. We're we're reminded to trust the method of gospel proclamation. We're reminded to trust the method of gospel proclamation. As we look at all of Paul's missionary journeys, as we see all the the transformation and the movement and all the changes that are happening spiritually in people's lives as a result of his ministry, what we see is the gospel impact that is being experienced in and through the ministry of Paul involves gospel saturation. All of the results that we see happen in Ephesus. Mark this down. Think about this. All the results that we see Here happening in Ephesus and beyond because of what's going to happen in Ephesus. All the churches that will be founded and established within a hundred mile radius of Ephesus because of what's happening in Ephesus. And we're seeing the beginnings of this work right here in Acts chapter 19. How Ephesus is going to become the leading center of the Christian world. All the lives that are going to be changed for eternity. All the people that are going to be saved. All of this change. All of this shifting. All of this change in worship culture. Calling people to worship the creator God of the Bible. All of it is a result of what we read in verse 10. It says this continued for two years. What what continued for two years that helped ignite this transformation in this culture for the glory of Jesus Christ? What is this? This continued for two years. Paul comes into Ephesus. He immediately begins to preach the word. He gathers to himself 12 men, which is an interesting number, disciples, and he begins his work. He sets up shop in a school in the city called the Hall of Tyrannus. And for two years, what does it say that he does? What does it say he's committed to? Does it say that he, uh, for two years, he entertained audience? with bait-and-switch evangelism methods? Does it say for two years he worked really hard? Is there anything here indicating that he worked really hard for two years to create polished, high-production quality presentations about God in a way that competes with the level of the presentation quality that you see down at the theater where they were having their plays and gladiator fights? It says for two years they meet in a school, and what did they do? They reasoned with lost people. They talked with people about what? The word. They preached the word, the same method they've used from the beginning, preaching the word, scattering the seeds of God's word, scattering the seeds of of the gospel over and over and over again and praying that the Holy Spirit would take that and make it take root in the lives of lost people. 
Acts 2.41, so those who received what? His word were baptized. Acts 6.7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 12.24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13.49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. I love what it says in chapter 18, verse 5. It says when Silas and Timothy, when they finally, finally caught up with you, Paul... Can't keep up with you, man. They finally catch up with him in Corinth. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was what? Occupied with the word. Testifying to people that Christ was Jesus. May we be people found occupied with the word at any given time. In chapter 18, verse 11, it says that he ministered there in Corinth for a year and six months. Doing what? Teaching the word of God among them. And what was the result? People were saved. What was the result? Families were transformed for the glory of God. The common denominator as he visited town after town, community after community, as he would go in and he would minister in this way, preaching the word. There was a lot of churches, big and small, that are very intentional, very organized, very focused, very committed to a goal. But often that goal is misplaced. And one mistake is this, that often they are more focused on being relevant to the culture than they are for preaching the word. They drift and depart from really what is the basic strategy of historical Christianity, which is to preach the word. You strive for relevance and you're going to, you better be very, very careful because relevance alone as a ministry strategy may have the appearance of success for a period of time, but it will not lead to making real tried and true disciples of Jesus Christ. Here at Schindler Drive, we and I say this in all love, we are not here to entertain you. We are not here to leave you on an emotional high that will wear off by the time you get into traffic and there's somebody in front of you looking on their phone and they don't see the light turn green. And all that inspiration to live for the Lord goes right out the window. We're not here to leave you on an emotional high. We're not here to compete with other things in the world that are good at capturing our attention. Hey, there's a place for excellence. There's a place for doing things well and presenting things well. But our focus is on making solid and strong disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is only ever accomplished through the method of clear and faithful gospel Bible proclamation. Amen. Romans ten seventeen, Paul says this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As you study all of these lives in this Roman Empire that are being radically changed and transformed here in Acts, as it's recorded in Acts in the first century, we can't forget the foundation that was laid because it's what we continue to lay. It's what we continue to do. Preaching the word, preaching the gospel, reasoning with people, talking with people about the goodness of Jesus Christ, the goodness of the gospel The good news that Jesus Christ came and lived the life we can't live, died the death that we deserve to die, rose from the dead, and he's the only way to have a relationship with God. That's the gospel. And the key to our city being transformed and our lives being transformed is continuous gospel saturation, saturating your families with the word. Some of you parents trust the word. If there's a if there's a disinterested feeling that you are sensing in your, in your kids, if, there's, if you feel like, that, like you're not connecting, if you feel like there's a gap between you being able to, to, to have conversations with them and for them to get spiritually interested, don't rely on anything else except the word. Converse with them about the word. Talk with them about the gospel. Point them to Jesus Christ. Rely on God's word. 
Our workplaces need to be saturated with the gospel. Our conversations with our neighbors, with our kids, with our family, with ourselves need to be saturated. Need to be dripping with gospel truth. And Paul wants to see his city saturated with the gospel. Why? Because he knows the power in it. One of the most uh, humbling tasks living the adult life in Northeast Florida is having a, a, first of all, you know, you know, being a homeowner and dealing with all the stuff that you have to deal with. But one of the most humbling tasks is trying to maintain a nice, lush, problem-free yard filled with St. Augustine grass. Can I get an amen from anybody in the room? I mean, come on. I share with you a little bit some critters that make that uh, you know, a, a problem and a challenge in my own life. We had an armadillo problem for a while and we were able to finally, there's a little pig just rooting around and everything, making stuff miserable. Finally got rid of those. Now I got a raccoon issue and really the only problem, they, they, the, the fat raccoon keeps on hanging onto the bird feeder and keeps popping it off of that thing. I walked out the other night and shined the flashlight and it was just caught. <laughs> just looked at me like, gotcha. And he scurried up a tree. But the critters that you really got to worry about are the ones you can't see. Those are the ones that make your life miserable trying to maintain a yard in Northeast Florida. And maybe you've been running into this. I think it might have something to do with all the rain and stuff, but a little thing called a webworm. What, no, you don't know about webworms? So that these things, it's called webworms, right? Did I get that wrong? Okay. Okay. Maybe I'll check that later. All right. So that was really weird. All right. Maybe I'm alone in this, but that's what the guy from Turner Pest Control told me it is. All right. And so he came and sprayed for whatever that is. Maybe he lied to me so that I would be embarrassed saying it in front of you right now. But it's killing my grass. And so he came and he, and he said, he goes, I spread it out on your lawn. You shouldn't have any other trouble. Well, of course, this past few days I'm mowing my grass and here comes the moths again. And whatever those little grubs or worms were, I guess they're still there. There's corners of my grass where those things are still there, are still alive. And so I called them or I called the lady who then I guess related on to the guy. I said, hey, I need him to come back and I need him to spread that everywhere. I need him to nuke my entire lawn because I'm tired of it dying from whatever these critters are down in the soil. I need you to saturate every corner of my yard. Why? Because I want the evil out and I want the nice lush fruit of St. Augustine grass rising up. And Paul looks out at this vast region filled with all of these people involved in pagan idolatry. And here's what he's committed to. I want to see the entire thing saturated with the gospel, not my wise words, not trying to dress it up or dress it down or water it down. The pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he knows that it has to be permeated with the gospel that alone has the power to kill What is in the hearts of people that will bring certain spiritual death and alone has the power to ignite the hearts of sinners in the hearts of sinners. That's which will grow up to eternal life and inward transformation. And as they simply relied on that strategy of proclaiming and spreading the gospel, God moved mightily in in those areas. And if we want to impact our streets, if we want to impact our schools, if you want to impact your families, listen, we too have to continue to rely on the basic strategy of biblical Christianity. Preach the word. 
sow the gospel over and over and over again. The greatest change in our city and in our homes and in our families and our workplaces is not going to come at the hands of a politician. It's not going to be because a certain policy was passed. It will come when the Holy Spirit works through born again parents, born again believers, born again friends, born again neighbors who are having real gospel conversations with people they know. That is how a, a city is flipped right side up for the glory of God. Trust the method of gospel proclamation. Second thing is this. Stay aware of the spiritual battle. Stay aware of the spiritual battle. This is a pretty funny part of the story. What happens here? You get the seven sons of Sceva. All right. They're watching Paul perform these miracles, which is just a great name. Like if you're, if you're putting together a heavy metal band, there's a great name for your heavy metal band. Seven sons of Sceva. All right. So their dad's name Sceva says, uh, says there he's a Jewish high priest. It's a little hard to make sense of it. He may have gave himself that priestly title. But it seems like seven of his sons have turned from traditional Judaism to form some kind of paranormal demon hunter society club. All right. One Bible teacher said it's the first version century of the Ghostbusters right here. They're going around practicing exorcisms. It's much like and it's much like uh, Simon in Acts. chapter. Remember Simon the magician in Acts chapter eight. They want the power of Jesus. They want the attention of doing some impressive feats that that could bring them. But they don't want Jesus. That's the problem. And they've been listening to Paul. They've been taking notes. They've been bringing notes back to their little wizardry, you know, demon cast out, you know, exorcism, secret society and sharing their notes. I heard Paul today. Maybe one guy came back and said, I heard Paul. I heard him do it. Right. He was this person there. They were sick or they had a demon in them. And, and he started talking and he said, I'm telling you, I saw him. And he said, I command you in the name of Jesus. Boom. This thing came out of this person. They were really crazy. Now they're calm as a cucumber. They were really sick. And now they're healed. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, let's go try that. So they find a man, they actually go out with that information and they find a man who's possessed by a demon and they gather around him. I don't know who the spokesperson of that group was. Maybe it's their version of Dr. Peter Vinkman, Ghostbusters joke. I'll keep moving. So, and I love their response in verse 15. The evil spirit residing in the man spoke and said this. Listen to this. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? They think they've got the formula. They say, I adjure you by Jesus, the guy who Paul proclaims. And we don't really get the rest of it. It doesn't really matter. All I know is that the demon looks at him and says, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you, bozos? And in verse 16, it says, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So let's just make this clear. Just everybody's on the same page. You go into a fight fully clothed. And you run away from that fight naked as a jaybird screaming for your life. It's safe to say you have decisively lost that fight. All right. There's no way you should have seen the other guy. Right. That that ain't going to work. You lost. You literally got the pants beat off of you. And so these men run away. It says they run away wounded, which probably means physically. But I would venture to say probably emotionally wounded as well. You don't. That's going to be hard for them to get over. Right. Alistair Begg, the great pastor, calls these guys the seven streakers of Sceva, right? <laughs> that offends you. Get mad at Alistair Begg. I thought it was pretty funny. But I want you to think about something that's easy to overlook right here. Crazy story. Funny story. But think about how crazy it is that that demonic force knew who Paul was. Of course he knew who Jesus was. But he knew who Paul was. Paul's got a nature just like ours. 
He, he recognized the Apostle Paul. He recognized his name. How in the world does that get out in the demon world? I don't know. Maybe they've got some most wanted posters with Paul's mug on it, like in the subways of the demonic realm. I don't know. Maybe his, his picture is posted down on the storefronts of somewhere in the kingdom of darkness, right? But all I know is somehow Paul, because, because he's a man on mission for the glory of Jesus Christ, is a household name in the kingdom of darkness. Which brings up a question you probably weren't expecting to be confronted with this morning. But it's a question I'd, I beg you to ask of yourselves. How well am I known among the demons? Are you so committed to the mission of Jesus Christ? Are you so committed to gospel advancement? Are you so committed to gospel saturation? Are you so committed to pushing back darkness that demonic forces are familiar with you? Or would they say, I know Jesus and I know so-and-so, but who are you? So I guess you could say as a disciple of Jesus Christ that you should be striving to be a ridiculously famous and hated celebrity in hell. (laughs) Now, some of you zoned out over the last 10 minutes and that's all you heard so far. Did he just say be a celebrity in hell? You're going to need to ask your neighbor, your spouse, or someone sitting next to you later on what I meant by that. But if you know Jesus and you're committed to the mission, you will be known there. These seven sons of Sceva who don't know Jesus, weren't with Jesus, or operate under zero power when it comes to coming up against a demonic force like this. They get beat senseless, closeless. And in verse 17, and this became known to all residents in Ephesus. Of course it did. This kind of story gets around. All right. Did you guys hear about the sons of Sceva? Well, sit down. This is a good one. And it says, and fear fell upon the Jews and Greeks. In the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. God took this, which really has to do with revealing to this region the power of Jesus and what this demon said. And showing that the power of Jesus and the name of Jesus is nothing to be trifled with. And God uses this, this situation right here to turn people to the gospel. We're going to look at that next week. We're going to see the change that happens as the gospel takes root right here in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus. But it's also a story, and I think instead of moving forward, and we'll get to that next week, I think this is a good place to kind of throw the car and park this morning and to take some time to allow our hearts to be reminded of a real part of gospel advancement. It's a story that reminds us of this, that every facet of our life is a spiritual battlefield. Every facet of our life is a spiritual battlefield. Listen, wherever God is at work, we've said this over and over again, Satan's at work. Wherever God's at work, Satan's at work. He's real. He's really evil. He really wants to steal. He really wants to kill. He really wants to destroy your life. We cannot be reminded of that too much. You would think that the the seven streakers of Sceva would make Ephesus not forget this or the Christians in Ephesus not forget this. Oh, but they would need a reminder. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 is if to say, remember, for we do not wrestle. He's writing back to this church that experienced revival because of what we just talked about with these sons of Sceva. He says, don't forget, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We need to be aware of that. Now, there are two extreme views of demonic forces and activity that aren't helpful. C.S. Lewis helps us 
point those out. On one hand, he warns against obsessing over demonic activity. In fact, you need to remember this, that this is a unique time on the timeline of church history. All right, so with the types of miracles that we're seeing here, all the supernatural activity, when, we, you know, when, when the canon comes together and we have God's revealed word to us, before that happened, God would find ways to break into the natural, the supernatural break into the natural to authenticate messages, to, to demonstrate his power. Now we have his word. And through his word, the power of the gospel that opens up the eyes of hearts and unbelievers to see the treasure of Jesus Christ. And when, you, when your will is exposed to the treasure of Jesus Christ and you see how beautiful he is in the treasure that he is, what the response of your will is is faith and repentance. So, that, so that's, that, that's the main weapon we use to fight. So it, nowhere in scripture does it, does it explicitly say to go around casting out demons. We, our weapon is the gospel. Right? The gospel frees sinners. The gospel frees people from, from being trapped and imprisoned in a kingdom of darkness. Right? So we don't obsess over it in that way, kind of like following suit with the sons of Sceva, the way they're going around as demon hunters. This is also for those who kind of look for a demon around every corner, like you're waiting for a demon to fall out of your cereal box this morning. Like when something breaks, it's always a demon. You know? Like then the my, my vacuum broke. I knew it. Satan put another demon in this thing, preacher. Well, it may be because your vacuum's 30 years old. You may need to go get a new Hoover, right? That may need to, need to be, that may, may be the problem. There's another extreme, and it's this, to, to disbelieve in demonic activity. And that's probably where most of us are at. Like when we talk about usually biblically conservative you know, doctrinally sound churches like this tend to be prone to wander over in this area of extremity that's wrong. It's just simply to not believe the seriousness of demonic activity. Christian, listen, every day when you wake up, this morning as you're sitting in the chair that you're sitting in, there should be an awareness in your mind and in your heart that you're existing on a spiritual battlefield as a Christian. You need to know that, it's a, 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 that that ruler is a defeated foe, but at the same time, he is a temporary wicked ruler of this world who's scheming to destroy your life. I don't believe that a spirit-filled believer can be possessed by a demon. I don't believe that he can destroy your eternal soul, but I do believe Satan and demonic forces can create chaos in our life, much like he did Job, where he wants to make you doubt the goodness of God. Much like he did in the life of David, where he'll take unsurrendered areas of your life and ruin your life. I believe he's working in government to place in places with the goal of inflicting harm on the bride of Christ. I believe he wants to divide the church, a church like this, over silly things that really don't matter. I believe he's also working in your home. And in your life to create strife and division and destruction and ineffectiveness in your life. And what this, what this does right here is once again in Acts is it says, hey, take the gospel goggles and put them over your eyes and see through the lens of scripture and see that the problems and the wars and the strife and all the issues in this world and in your life and the lies that at times you believe that don't align with truth, that they're connected to an unseen world. 
A spiritually dark world run by an enemy that first Peter, Peter says in first Peter, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, when you look behind the curtain of the drama of your life, you have an enemy who has an army of minions who hates you if you're in Christ Jesus. He hates your life. Do you believe that? But it's also important to believe that also behind the curtain of the drama of your life with those gospel glasses on that you see a victorious king who's already defeated the enemy on the cross who will one day deliver the final blow, death blow when he returns a second time. That you, you need to see that as well this morning. That you have a resurrected king who's called you to stand up, to wake up to this reality of a spiritual battlefield, and then to go into battle with the awareness that that's true. Yes, with the awareness that the enemy has been defeated, but with the awareness that there is a temporary ruler of this world that wants to destroy your life. Paul lays out in Ephesians 6, he says, there's a command right now. There, It's not just an awareness. There's also a command in verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In other words, what Paul helps us see is he kind of lays this out and fleshes this out in Ephesians chapter 6. Is you just don't have, it's just not about having an awareness of it that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's also about understanding that God's provided everything that we need to live a life of victory in him. And Paul When he lays out that armor, he's pulling straight from Isaiah chapter 59. It's the very armor of the Messiah. And we don't have time to go through all the pieces of the armor, but I just want you to think about a couple of things. Again, here's what I'm trying to, here's where we're going. We need to have an awareness that as we advance the gospel, that we're on a spiritual battlefield. But what Paul tries to help us understand is Jesus hasn't told us just to run into that battlefield unarmed. He's given you everything that you need, the resources you need to live your life faithfully on that battlefield for him. Paul says, put on a helmet of salvation. That's one of the pieces of that armor. Because maybe you're wondering, like, what is Satan trying to do? What is Satan trying to do in my life? The armor shows you that. Every piece of the armor shows you what Satan is specifically trying to do in your life. That's why he's telling you to put it on. So a helmet of salvation. You know what that shows us? It shows us that he doesn't want some of you in this room who aren't saved. He doesn't want you to be saved. He didn't want you to have the helmet of salvation. He didn't want you to experience eternal life with Jesus. He doesn't want you to experience his grace. He doesn't want you to experience his forgiveness And if you are saved, when it comes to the helmet of salvation, the reason why you need to put that on shows you why you need to put it on. Because if you are saved, what he wants you to do, he wants you to not be convinced that you are saved. He's relentless in the way he lies and deceives and accuses. That's what Satan specializes in. Lying, deceiving, accusing. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ this morning... The whispers in your heart and in your mind about all the reasons why you don't want to come or why you don't think you can come to Jesus Christ, that's not just coming from your mind. That originates behind the curtain, the drama of your life from the father of lies. Who has whispered things long enough into your mind where you've started to believe them to where when we say you can freely experience salvation, you can freely experience a relationship with God if you repent and trust in Jesus Christ this morning and you begin to believe the lie. No, that can't be for me. 
think God could save me? You don't know me. Pastor, I, I see you up there, man, but you don't know me, man. My sin is too deep and too wide, too deep and too wide for anybody like me to ever have hope. And my sin's deep and wide too. But based on the truth of God's word, the saving power of Jesus Christ is deeper and wider. You've got no idea what I've done. You've got no idea what I've done. But you know what? Based on the truth of God's word, what needs to be done has already been done in Christ Jesus. And when he hangs on that cross and God's word tells us that he says it is finished, the veil is torn and he pays the penalty in full. And you have an enemy who doesn't want you to bow your knee to him as Lord, the Lord of your life. But by his grace, that helmet of salvation can be placed on your life this morning. If you'll turn away from the father of lies and listen to the father of truth. Who says no matter how deep and wide your sin is, my grace is deeper and it's wider. If you have thrown the full weight of your faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross. The whispers that you'll begin to hear is you'll begin to hear you think God could keep somebody. You think God could have unconditional love for a screw up like you? Really? You said you weren't going to do that again. Here you go. You really think God's going to put up with you? You really think he's going to keep you in his family forever? Where do you think that comes from? Behind the curtain of the drama of your life from the father of lies. So in your heart, what you have to do is return to the basic truths of God's word. And in your heart, know and believe more. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. And you put on the helmet. Romans 8.1, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth. Put that on. Why? Because Satan wants to continue to fill your mind and your heart full of lies, full of accusations. Some of you are listening to those whispers in your heart this morning. Can you like students beginning to to feel and hear whispers into your heart? Like you think you can believe this old ancient book? Maybe all of this is some kind of crutch that weak people lean on to get themselves through life without losing their mind. Whispers like, your life really doesn't matter. Whispers like, just just inject your flesh with this pleasure, right? Just indulge your, it's not really going to matter. It's not that big of a deal. Whispers like, you really think there's a way for your son or your daughter who has obviously rebelliously run from anything that has to do with Jesus Christ. You really think that Jesus is powerful enough to save them? And he says, put on the belt of truth. It's what protects you from those lies. It's what guides you. It's what leads us. It's what is the most powerful weapon against an enemy who wants to come and steal and and kill and destroy and deceive and accuse you. Listen, but it will only protect you if you pick it up and consume it. It only protects you if you read it. He ends the section with verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. You know why that's there? Because the enemy knows that prayer is the most powerful instrument that releases the power of God into our world and into our life. And that's why he's done such a good job at distracting so many of us from practicing it like we should. 
We don't have time to run through every piece of the armor this morning. But really what you're finding there is you're finding a picture of a believer actively living out their identity in Christ, a picture of a blood-bought, born-again, raised-to-new-life believer in whom he's poured out his Holy Spirit, who's utilizing every resource he's made available, the armor of God that's everything we need to live a life of spiritual victory and to flourish spiritually in the middle of warfare. Here's Here's the problem. Too many professing believers just aren't suiting up in the armor. Too many professing believers tend to live their life as if the spiritual war zone doesn't even exist. Imagine one of an American soldier reporting for duty, just use your imagination, the location of a war zone. There's firefights. And he shows up and he reports to his commander and his commander looks him up and down and shakes his head as he sees this soldier show up and he's got flip-flops on and basketball shorts and a tank top. (laughs) Reporting for duty, sir. Reporting for duty? You're here to fight in the war? Yeah. You gonna wear that? Yeah, it's comfortable. Well, it's a firefight. Do you have a weapon? I have a Swiss Army knife. Picked it up from the house before I left. It's actually pretty convenient. A lot, of, hey, a lot of options here. Even a toothpick, you never know. Or tweezers, you know, you never know when you might need that. It's a ridiculous picture. Absolutely ridiculous picture. That's not how you dress for war. Listen, and yet it's no more ridiculous than the way we looked, some of us, when we rode out of bed this morning. Whether that's prayerlessness a lack of saturating our own hearts and our own home and our own families and our conversations with the gospel, whether it's leaving our house without first preaching the gospel to our own hearts, not covering our dads who should be spiritual leaders in your home, not covering your home with prayer, not spending time praying for your spouse, with your spouse, not praying over your children. People not locked into a community of faith, not plugged into a small group, not plugged into a place of service, living life out on an island, isolated. That's not where Christians are intended to live. In those places, you're roaming around as an easy target for the enemy who's behind the curtain of the drama of your life. And we wonder why there's so much spiritual anemia. Hey, we wonder why there's such a lack of joy and in tenacity spiritually with professing Christians right now in a world that just feels like it continues to swirl around and toss us about with the storms of life and COVID and viruses and more COVID and more viruses and more hurt, and more stress and more craziness. And how many times have we said this over and over and over again? That we deal with the same pain and the same junk and the same confusion as the rest of the world. But what should make us unique is we walk through that with a joy and a peace that they look at that seems foreign to them. That we know the key to and it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And because there's not more of that being demonstrated and on display in some of our lives. It's simply because you're not returning to the basics of your faith. And suiting up with the armor of God, practicing prayer, practicing Bible intake, saturating your own heart with gospel truth. 
as Paul goes into this city. Here's the thing. He knows, he knows the spiritual, he knows the spiritual victory is his. He knows the battle has been won, and so should we. Right? That's important. He knows he's on the winning side. That's important. When we talk about spiritual battle, we're not talking about this big cosmic size, big, you know, ring in the galaxies, and you got Jesus on this side, and you got Satan on this side, and let's see who wins. Satan's a created being. He's already been defeated at the cross. He's a defeated foe. Paul believed that he knew he fought from a place of victory. So should we. But he also knew that as a believer between now and when we enter into eternity, we face an enemy who wants to obliterate us. And he understood that Jesus isn't asking us to stand up and run into a battle that he has not presented us with the resources that we can live faithfully in and through. Paul got that and so should we. God has not called us Christian to live out our Christian life and to advance the gospel on a church playground. It's a spiritual battlefield. And it's not a game. And if you think it's a game, just look at the sons of Sceva. I think they would be willing to testify it's not something you want to play around with. The victory's ours. Jesus has given us everything we need to live a life of faithfulness on the battlefield. The question is, will we pick those things up and put them on? Let's pray.